Dear Lord, we're grateful for so many things, not the least of which is this exciting new space uh, that, get, that we get to be in. And we know, Lord, that uh, while there are many conveniences that you give us, many luxuries, many blessings, um, all of these things are just um, a distant second to uh, meeting here with you. Lord, we're here because we want to know more about your scriptures. We want that to be applied to our lives. We want to live godlier lives. We want to please you because we love you. So may the time spent here during this Sunday school um, be, uh, check that box, we pray, Lord. May you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is our second class on this topic. And to be clear, our primary source here that I'm using to get most of the material anyway is this book, Strange New World by Carl Truman. Um, I have a few quotes. uh, And the topic uh, uh, that has to do with this, in fact, the subtitle, the, uh, the, is that subtitle? What what do you call the, anyway, Strange New World, what is it? No. Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. So we're talking about um, the difficulties of how, and how the Christian should look at, handle, think about this whole idea of, of the modern sexual revolution, transgenderism, and those kinds of things. Uh, so just real quickly, uh, let me hit the review, which does not involve a quiz this time, no quiz. This is just straight up review. So last time, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, I guess I could. Nah. So, okay, what is Satan's goal? If anyone just wants to throw something out and remember what Satan's goal? Just be. That's right. That's right. He's prowling around like a roaring like lion, seeking who he may devour. That's exactly right. So I got Jane over here mouthing the, the scripture. Praise God. So His whole goal is he is on the prowl. He is looking for someone to devour. And tied to that, right within that 1 Peter 5 reference, is the uh, instruction then is that the Christian should be sober-minded and watchful. So if we're going to be sober-minded and watchful, then that means what we cannot do is be naive, intentionally naive, and willfully ignorant sticking our head in the sand and just saying, I just don't want to know about it. I don't want to talk about it. It's not my problem. It's not my issue. Let's not, let's not think about this is not really a good um, um, option. Okay. And then according to Ephesians 5, and we, we looked at verses 1 through 11, and we talked about God's directive and specifically as it related to three things. Remember, I was trying to pin Gerald down uh, last time and because in that, in that section of scripture that he, he was reading, in Ephesians 5, it kind of hit three things. Does anyone happen to remember? That's kind of a stretch, I know. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 to 11, because it, it listed the same three things a couple of different times. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. That's exactly right. So what's I think as it relates to what we're talking about, there's a one-for-one direct connection, right? Or obvi- I should say obvious connection to sexual immorality, an obvious connection to impurity. Uh, but then maybe the question you think is covetousness, you know, isn't coveting having to do with like, well, I, I would really like to have, um, we had a whole discussion yesterday, Stephen Alt and his beautiful truck. 
and uh, that I would like to have. And I told him it was his fault that I was struggling with covetousness. But, but in this case, what we're looking at is the idea of covetousness being God made me a certain way and I don't want to be this way. I, would, I prefer to identify as something different. And so there's a sense of coveting um, and wanting an identity that you're actually not. And then in that same set of scriptures, we're called to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And then also remembering that in Matthew 10:16, we are sent by God in the midst of wolves and we are commanded to be what? We're sent, we're sent in the midst of wolves and we're supposed to be two things. That's right, innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. That's exactly right. Um, so we don't want to just stop at innocent as doves. We must be that way in our conduct, but we must also be wise as serpents. So as a result, we're uh, going through this, and I'll remind you, I mentioned this last time, that we're kind of taking a historical approach to seeing how we got here. You know, why, why are things kind of the way they are? Why does our culture think this way. And so we're kind of doing a little bit of a walk through uh, some historical stuff specifically. And I wrote the dates up there. I know some of you in the back, you can't read it from back there. Feel free to come up after you take a picture um, if it interests you at all. So you can see there, as far as the timing, we're, we're looking at the 16th to 18th centuries, actually just barely into the 19th century. And specifically, the influence of two men, Rene Descartes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, not to be confused with Jacques Cousteau or Inspector Clouseau for my Pink Panther friends, um, and, then, uh, and then how that then actually blossoms into an era known as the Romantic, uh, Romanticism, which runs from about 1800 to 1850. Okay, now, consider this sentence, this quote, or, you know, somebody saying this, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. If a person made that statement to a doctor from your grandparents' generation, what would that doctor say? The doctor, yes, see, Jane's already nailing it. She's going like this. So the doctor would basically, at that time, say, well, your thinking is not in alignment with the reality of your body, so we need to do something. We need to take measures, get you some, you know, some help, medications, whatever the doctor, you know, would, uh, would uh, the, the treatment that would be prescribed, but the treatment would be related to getting the mind in alignment with the reality, the truth, of what the body is. The exact same phrase said today to a doctor is going to elicit a doctor saying, oh, then we need to get your body in alignment with what you say about yourself. And you can see this entire transition, this flip that has taken place. So. Instead of, in the first case, a doctor that says, perhaps you should get counseling, you're not thinking right, today that uh, the doctor might say, perhaps you should see a surgeon, let's get your body aligned with, with what your inner feelings have determined truth to be. And, um, 
And so it's even got its own concept, which is known as gender dysphoria. And I want to read a, well, here's a quote from Truman. The body was decisive for answering the question of whether a person was a man or a woman. Doctors today, however, grant normative authority in such cases to inner feelings or psychological convictions, close quote. So this, of course, this is one of the things that's just, it shows the, the hypocrisy of our culture in that haven't you had the term science just jam down your throat? Follow the science. Science says, you know, science, science, science. Like, that's just the answer. The answer is science. You're wrong and I'm right. Science. I win. Right? I mean, there's just a sense of science trumps all things. As long as I say science, then you just can't. Well, well I, got, I, got, I got math on my side or something just because you said it. Um, and yet, what we see here maybe more than in a lot of other areas, is that this does not in any way actually follow science. This, uh, this concept does not follow science. And in fact, science, in a sense, has capitulated to the culture. And so what we have instead is a cultural commitment to affirm an individual's psychological conviction. So now you have a doctor who spent all this time studying and learning the intricacies of the human body and the reality of God's world and the order uh, that he has created as it relates to the human body. And yet when a person comes in and just says certain words, this is how I feel about myself, this is what I've decided about myself, the doctor crumbles like those little toys where you push the, push the bottom, right? You know what I'm talking about, the push the bottom and they just whoop. <laughs> That's the doctor. Oh, you said that. Those are your inner feelings. That's your psychological conviction. Push the button on the bottom of the toy. It collapses, the doctor, and there's no science uh, involved in any of that. That then leads to this, just this cultural commitment that just says, well, that's true. It, it just is. So that causes us to say, well, why, why does it happen this way? What's going on? And what we don't want to say is, well, you shouldn't be the Christian I'm not saying, and God's word is not saying, that the Christian should not be introspective, that you shouldn't think about your feelings, or that feelings don't matter, or what you think about yourself isn't important. That's not what scripture says. So how do these things apply? We have to look at how we evaluate the world around us, um, and, and how that impacts us, and the feelings that those evoke but we need to keep them within their biblical bounds. And it's certainly not the same thing as granting authority to your feelings. Feelings are important. Emotions are important. They're supplemental. God gives them to us for many very, very important reasons, but feelings are not authoritative. We don't take the feelings and say, well, that's what matters. That's the most important thing, and everything else has to come into conformity with how I feel and how I feel about myself. In fact, not only that, we talked about this last week, the rest of the world has to come in conformity with how I feel about myself. And if you don't celebrate how I feel about myself and the decisions I've made about myself, then shame on you. And that's just, uh, that, that's completely out of line. Um, 
So here's another quote from Truman, quote, the transgender person by contrast sees inward psychological conviction as the non-negotiable reality to which all external realities must be made to conform, close quote. All right, so let's look at some scriptures. Let's make sure we're keeping ourselves tied to the Bible here. So what do we learn about the importance of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27? Glenda, top of the list. You remembered. Yeah, of course. Then God, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so Glenda. Mm-hmm. By the way, for those of you who weren't here last week, you may not realize this, so uh, you can learn this lesson at Glenda's expense, which is that besides reading the scripture frequently, there's a follow-up question. So the follow-up question is, what is the importance as it relates to the body in, this, in these verses? What, what's the connection there? As it relates to the body? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, God created the um, people, yes. male and female, period. Okay, and honestly, I think you can roll your answer back to even that first half, which is God created it, right? Now, he created the, the additional information is exactly what you said, which is right out of Scripture. God created uh, a person as a man, created a person as a female, so that's its own additional information. But what we pull out of this as, script, uh, as Christians is we say God's Word says that he created it, which means he decides, Right? God decides. He created the body. He's the one that decides. All right, very good. And then who's got 1 Corinthians 15 here? Joel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19. First Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Yes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, now, it's not the main point of that particular portion of Scripture, but can you see, this is a little more difficult, Joel, can you think of how that pericope, that, those, that set of verses would correlate to what we're talking about? The importance of... Um, because there is a resurrection... Uh, a resurrection of what? A, a resurrection of the body. Boom. So, what, so there is an importance granted by God to the body itself. The body is resurrected. And here we have it tied directly to Christ. Now, obviously, the main theological point is something separate that has to do with uh, the, the theology of the resurrected Christ. But the importance of the physiology, in a sense, of that that Christ's body was raised, it is so important 
in God's economy and his scheme and the, his structure of things that if it did not happen, we are the most to be pitied. You can skip all the way to the end. We're a joke. That's how important it is. So we can't just discard all things body and just go, well, that has to do with the world. It's a physical thing. Yes, our hope is in heaven and our eternal inheritance, and so let's just not worry about all this other physical-type stuff. It's like way, way, way down here. It's, it's, and you can go really far with that, and it gets into, another, into a heresy and everything. But the point is that God created the body, so there's value in physical, in the body, in the body that you have and that God has given to you. And when we look about it in that spiritual sense of the resurrection, there is great importance to the fact that it's our bodies that are going to be resurrected, Jesus being the firstborn among creation in that, um, in that way. Okay, so let's go, let's hit some of our, um, our history stuff here. So as, as to kind of the why, why, how, when we got here. So our first guy that uh, I'm looking at is Rene Descartes. Okay, does anybody off the top of their head without Googling it remember what he's his main thing that he's famous for? Sean, what do you got? I know you have. Close. That, you, you, the Latin is right. You're, you're close. Cogito. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for all those listening out in the inter, internet, <laughs> Sean just really disappointed everyone with his Latin. Yes, cogito ergo sum, which means in English, I think, therefore, I am. That is, that is Rene Descartes' like big contribution to society is that he came up there. So how did he get to that? You know, how did he become famous for that or what is that all about? Is that he was what was referred to as a radical skeptic. He was known for radical skepticism. He doubted everything. He made Thomas look like a true believer, right? I mean, he just doubted, doubted, doubted. He doubted all the way, like, is it real? Is it, is it possible this is all an illusion? Nothing is actual, nothing physical, or, or I should put it the other way. Anything physical is not actually real. How do we even know? And he doubted this and doubted himself and doubted all of reality all the way down to the point where he came to the conclusion, well, the very fact that I'm doubting means that I exist. That's how we got to, I think, therefore, I am like, the, well, the, the very fact that I'm thinking the questions mean, means that something about me must exist. And so how does that connect to what we're talking about here is what he did in that process is he created this dualism where he takes the person and he's separating them from their mind and their body, which not that there isn't any, you know, in some sense that you could talk about the mind and the body being different, but that he separated them so distinctly that he then gave, this is the additional problem, is then he, between the two, which one did he give credence to? The mind, right. So all of a sudden now, the reason that I exist I, is because I think. Like, my mind is what matters. And so that's just a, a basic philosophical concept, and that gets the ball rolling in that general direction. Now, and it creates the, a foundation that actually, uh, you know, the fruit of that is things that we're seeing here today. All right, now we go ahead and move on to uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a Genevan philosopher, very strange and paranoid man. 
And uh, in fact, he, uh, he had, I, th- I read he had five children, and like in infancy, he put them all in orphanages, which it, at, at that era was basically to consign them to death. Um, in any case, um, he posited two, a couple of different things here. One, the notion that the inner psychological life is the true identity of a person. And then second, that to the extent that society prevented a person from being who they really are, air quotes, it was a threat. So in short, society makes us inauthentic. Does that make sense? It's your inner psychological life that is your true identity, and then anything on the outside, so any religious um, um, teachings or pressures or structures, society, government, anything around on the outside of that then is a threat and, and could be making you inauthentic. Now, I would suspect, I'm not, I'm not sure that he would have, if, I, if I'm accurate here, I would suspect that for Rousseau, the idea of transgenderism is, um, was beyond the bounds of what he was thinking, although I'm, I also am totally speculating here that he wouldn't have been against that because if he is a true, truly committed to this thought process, then this is the route that it eventually takes. In any case, this sentiment is already at work. I'm going to read a quote that comes from this Rousseau's autobiography. One second here. Okay, so this is what Rousseau wrote. I, quote, I am resolved on an undertaking that has no model and will have no imitator. I want to show my fellow men a man in all the truth of nature. And this man is to be myself. The particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul that I promised, and to relate it faithfully, I require no other memorandum. All I need do, as I have done up until now, is to look inside myself. Close quote. So, This is that sentiment that he is fully committed to, that that inner self is the most important thing. Um, I mean, this is taking, you know, that idea to thine own self be true is to an exponential uh, degree. And where am I here? So it's helpful to, we want to keep in mind that it is helpful to think about our identity and its relation to its inner life but we also, as Christians, because I know I'm putting it in this category and we're, we're taking this historical approach that ends in this radical um, display with, that results at least today in, in transgenderism and things like that. Um, but I would say to you, as a Christian, is it possible that this same culture that we're saturated in that is communicating these same truths, these same sentiments has an impact on you. That it shapes the way that you think about yourself, the way that you uh, relate to your spouse, the way that you relate to your children, the way that you relate to other Christians. So 
uh, to put it differently, how much of my own identity is wrapped up in how I feel. So, uh, you know, we, we want to be careful here. I'm not, the, the purpose of the Sunday School and, and going through this is not so that we can stand on the high ground and just wag our finger at the world and say, wow, you guys are really bad. You know, I can't believe how bad you all are. We see the work of the evil one who's prowling about, who's prowling about like a, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but at the same time, we have got to be looking out for our own souls to see how are we too being influenced. To what degree do I say, do I get into an argument with my spouse or I yell at my children because this is how I feel and this is how I feel about myself and you are not complying with how I feel about myself. Therefore, you know, enter argument, enter punishing the other person, enter um, other sinful, you know, anger, lies, you know, all kinds of things um, that take place. So I want that to, to continue to ruminate in there. Now, when we think about this idea of the difference between what a person shows on the outside versus what is going on in the inside, um, historically, we have had a term for someone who negatively exhibits outward behavior that is inconsistent with what they think and believe. I know that's, uh, maybe that was a little confusing, um, but the word that we have for that is hypocrite, right? We, we, tr traditionally, when we find out that somebody thinks and believes something entirely different than what they're actually demonstrating to the watching world, we go, well, you're a hypocrite. So there is that extreme, and in fact, I will um, ask any of my more seasoned uh, friends, brothers and sisters in here, if they remember, so the, the Nixon tapes, okay, President Nixon. So there's the whole Watergate thing itself. So that had its whole own legal ramifications. But as it related to public opinion, what was the big thing that happened that those tapes, so for those that, that don't know, so Nixon recorded, he, he had all kinds of recordings, he had microphones, um, put in the Oval Office. He recorded conversations among his own staff and only a couple of people knew about it. So he was surreptitiously re making recording hours, thousands of hours of recordings and during uh, Watergate stuff, these recordings came out. And what was the big thing? What, what was the big hullabaloo? What was it, Paul? I'm sorry, it's a lot harder to hear in here. Okay, yes, yeah, so there's the 18 minutes that we're missing, so that's true. That had to do with the legal case, but... Okay, so what Wayne is saying is that the man, Billy Graham was particularly upset because the man that came out in the tapes was not the same man that he had portrayed in public. And what was it that on the tapes that revealed that he was a different man? Swearing. Yes, swearing. Curse words, strings, like, like just un minutes of him just bleh, cursing with, you know, in, in his regular speech with all of these other people. And that was completely different than the persona that he portrayed to the world as a dignified president. And so there was a sense of, you hypocrite. 
you know? You completely, you are a different person than what you're showing to us. Now, of course, the irony here, and again, as we start to see how culture has this influence, now, how uncommon is it to hear a politician use a swear word? Hear it all the time. And why do they do it? Because it makes them look authentic. I'm really mad about this. Let me tell you how mad I am about this topic. Boom. And then they, they squeeze in a, a well-timed, you know, swear word along the way to show you I'm being authentic. So that right there is showing you how in one particular way, society who looked at that scenario and said, oh my goodness, and were so offended that it put a black mark on his life, on his reputation, for the, I mean, all the way to the day he died, and yet those very same things are being used today to demonstrate the opposite, which is that, you, uh, that, that you're authentic. All right, who's got my, oh, actually, I didn't put it up there because I, want, I was worried about time. Okay, go, everyone turn to Psalm 26. And I want to just evaluate, take a few verses to evaluate how should we be thinking about this balance of examining ourselves and the process of am I authentic to, you know, what it is that I'm showing to the outside world. And so in Psalm 26, I'm just probably going to skip around a little bit. So notice at the beginning, this is uh, David's psalm. It says, Vindicate me, O Yahweh. I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. Prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. So just in reading those first three verses, is, it a, is David being introspective? Softball there. Is he, is he thinking about who he is on the inside? Is he thinking about his heart and his intentions? Yes, right? And he's even calling on God to examine those very same intentions. So it's, we, don't, we don't just say, well, that doesn't matter. We don't think about these things. Um, not saying that at all. That's exactly what David is doing. He's saying, prove me, O Yahweh. Try me. Test my heart test my mind. And then he goes on, I do not sit with men of falsehood. I don't consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I, I wash my hands in innocence. Um, I'm moving on down to verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless Yahweh. Now, there's a particular word that is there right at the close to the beginning of this psalm and also close to the end of the psalm. Does anyone catch which word it is that I think are great bookends to this psalm that, that relates to what he is claiming, anyway, in this examination? What do you got, Tammy? Integrity. That's exactly right. The word is integrity. Verse 1, vindicate me, Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And then you get down to the next, the last verse, verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. So, yes, we want to make sure we're examining, but the benchmark is not ourselves. It's not our inner feelings. It's not our psychological life. We are examining those things to bring them in compliance to what scripture says, to what God has to say, so that we are pleasing him, so that hopefully, like David in this psalm anyway, is saying, prove me, O Yahweh, and try me. And the trying and the proving is against the standard 
of God's word. Um, okay, Rousseau would say, going back to our, our guy Rousseau here, would say that it is society that corrupts the virtuous nature of the inner self. This is where you get the term like the noble savage. It's that, it's that whole uh, idea. So here's another quote by Truman, quote, for Rousseau, we are most ourselves when we act outwardly in accordance with that inner pristine voice of nature because we are naturally free, independent individuals, closed quote. It makes me cringe to think that someone would refer to their inward thoughts, their psychological life as pristine. Uh, it's just, we read a number of scriptures last week um, that say exactly the opposite, that our natural, the natural man does, is not pristine in any way. So all of that by Rousseau laid the foundation for romanticism. And romanticism then plants, you know, they've planted the seeds as things starting to grow. So as it's moving towards this whole idea of uh, romanticism, we see uh, Truman describes romanticism this way, quote, at, at its heart, romanticism sought to find authentic humanity in an acknowledgement of and connection to the power of nature, closed quote. So that's, that doesn't seem quite as directly connected, but what ends up happening now is all through Europe and Germany and Great Britain, now we have all of these other thinkers, artists, um, authors that are all committing themselves to this same ethic, that nature, which is another way of referring to that inward man, the, the, your own internal psychological assessment of yourself, is what is authentic. It's your inner feelings that are authentic. Society is corrupt, but instinct is accurate and authoritative. So, the natural consequence of this ethic is the difference between our attitude towards those ex expletives that Nixon gave in the 70s and any number of politicians today that use expletives. Like, we, now we see how the attitude of culture has changed, it's evolved over time, and now we look at that and we go, wow, the guy that gets um, punished for using them 50 years ago and then the guy that uses them today uh, is, that is considered to be authentic. He's, he's the real deal. He's really letting it out. Yes? About romanticism or? Okay. Uh, this is Truman. This is a quote from Truman. Quote, at its heart, romanticism sought to find authentic humanity in an acknowledgement of and connection to the power of nature. Close quote. So there's that connection to the power. And now it's starting to spread. It's, it's, it's getting into all the arts and into uh, literature. And that sentiment is coming out. Okay. Now, who's my, uh, my two Proverbs 4 folks? I don't know if they're anywhere near each other. Kaylin? Okay. Where's my mic? Mic man. Oh, you have it already. Thank you. Okay. So Proverbs 4, verses 1 to 9. Go ahead. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. 
For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. All right, Kaylin, here's my question. Based on these verses that you just read, what is God's attitude, um, hopefully this isn't a confusing question, about inner feelings or maybe more specifically external forces? Um, how else did I put it here? Or, you know, or conforming to external forces? I know. Is that a difficult question? Yeah, I don't understand what you're asking. How, based on these verses here, should we be conforming to outside? The only outside standards we should conform ourselves to are those of God. I, it's really, I, I'm behind the speakers. I just can't hear. The only outside standards we should be conforming ourselves to are those okay, of God. Okay, exactly. So, and, I'm, and I know my questions make things more difficult. So, uh, go ahead and hand that to the 20 to 27, and then I'll keep talking. Because it, really, it's all of Proverbs 4, but for the sake of time, I just chose these two chunks. So, whoever's got verses 20 to 27, let her rip. Dennis. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Okay, let me, let me, so this is the same topic that, I'm, that I was asking Kaylin, but I'm going to ask it, in a, I think, in a little bit better, easier way to you, Dennis, than I was giving it to, to Kaylin there, which is, um, should, what, how does this, how does this proverb relate to following your inner feelings? Doing what your inner psychological... I don't think it tells us. Or in feelings. Okay, what does it tell us to do instead? I'm clearly basically pay attention to what God's saying, not what I think. Right, and how does He provide that instruction? By staying straight, keeping your right forward, not is anyone else sideways. following me here. I know it's me, Gerald. What do you got? Say it loud. Bingo. There, that's a huge one. Wisdom is outside of ourselves. And go ahead. Okay. Okay. Let me. Uh, I, was, I was about so to say that. So if if we just if we just kind of follow the this psalm a little bit, hear your father's instruction, <coughs> um, and then when I was a son with my father, tended the only one in the sight of mother. He taught me. So it's coming. Uh, wisdom is from outside. It's coming from your father. It's coming from those you know, ultimately that are, that are godly. And so you have all of this talk about commandments, about, um, about hold, keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Um, 
Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. In other words, this is exactly the opposite of let me think about, let me sit and ruminate on my own feelings and what I think how the world should be and how I feel about myself and then force the external world to comply with how I feel about myself. Proverbs is saying, no, no, you should be parented, honestly, as an adult. You should be parented with instruction, with wisdom, and in fact, when you get these things, do not swerve from them. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, and stick entirely to them. All right, I apologize for making that considerably more difficult than it needed to be. All right, Colossians 3, 18 to uh, the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so let's... This has got to be one of the most politically incorrect portions of Scripture, right? It, this is what we're talking about. This is where Scripture runs just full force, head-to-head, with, um, with our current culture. So, Brooklyn, what is the element in this that runs through it, what you just read, that just runs completely counter to what we're talking about? There are specific roles for different people. Okay, you're talking about specific roles, and even within those roles, there is a particular word that is like, oh, we don't do that. Submit. Submit. Obedience and submission? Whoa. Whoa. Pump the brakes. That is not what our culture talks about. That is, like, that's the stuff that Christians actually, and this goes back to how are you influenced by this society when you have a conversation with someone else and it comes to these types of topics. So I'm not even talking about that, you know, maybe you're the kind of person that has no trouble at all wagging your finger and, 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 and stand and waving your Bible around and saying, can you believe these transgender people? You know, that is nuts. But as soon as someone says something about wives, submit to your husband, you're like, well, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, love, we should love everyone. And, you know, don't judge. And, you know, don't cast the first stone, and you know, what, all of a sudden these qualifiers kind of, Christian qualifiers start to sneak out, right? Because we're like, well, you know, let's, let's not be too, and so, but the, the, the fact of the matter is we should be doing neither, which is, you know, just bonking people on top of the head, nor should, should we ever make any apology for something the scripture says. So instead, this is what's amazing, is not only is this, the, what Brooklyn just read, not only is this instruction it comes directly from God. Do you realize that three different times in this portion of scripture that Brooklyn read, God even proclaims a benefit or a reward in some way? It says, um, for wives, it is fitting in the Lord when they submit to their husband. Children obeying their parents pleases the Lord. 
And then as it relates to the whole thing, after it talks as well about bond servants, slaves, I do think that that also employs uh, or applies to the kind of employer-employee relationship, has a direct correlation. And it says, work as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Fitting in the Lord, pleases the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. All three of those phrases are directly tied to this schema, this, this design by God of our world, of what he says is true and how it's supposed to go, that relates to wives submitting to husbands, children obeying parents, and bond servants or slaves, or, or by, um, um, you can uh, extract out of that employees, you know, working for the Lord in, in submission, basically being an honorable um, employee. And so that is not what the world says. The world says, I have a, a voice, my inner feelings are what matter, and when my boss does not take that into account, the boss needs to pay. And that is not only wrong from a, you know, a transgender, you know, situation where we look at that and we go, well, yeah, of course not. You know, the boss shouldn't have, you know, that's not, you know, why should the company have to comply with what you say about yourself and your inner feelings? This applies to you also as the Christian in your daily life, in your marriage, in your parenting, and in your, in the company where you work. Are you being, are you honoring the Lord in a way that you could recite the psalm that David, that we read uh, in Psalm 26 of David, Lord, try my heart. Are you able to say that? Prove me in your integrity. Are you also able to look at Proverbs 4 that we just read and say, okay, I didn't step to the right or to the left, and that I'm going to be a godly employee despite working for a horrible and annoying boss? It doesn't mean you don't look for another job, but you conduct yourself in a particular way. A wielder of the mic. All right, he's walking. He's walking your way. Oh, holy moly. Yikes. Okay. We got to close it. Uh, I was just going to make a comment in a agreement. It, um, we're all familiar with Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But I think what you're saying, though, is it's, it's not just uh, killing of the mind. It's, we're not automatons. We're not getting rid of the mind. And in fact, in Jeremiah 15, um, just a couple chapters before, it says, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. So instead, it's, it's the conforming of our Correct. heart and mind to God's will, um, not just the um, denial of what our heart wants. It's the transformation of the heart. Perfect ending. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the time. You truly did answer our prayer from the beginning. And we're thankful for that. May it result in godly fruit in our lives and right thinking about ourselves, about our inner feelings, about, um, uh, about the truth of this world. And may we uh, comply with your word, not just out of sense of obedience, but because we love you. Bless the service that follows.